Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Australia is really setting an example for how a middle power can protect its interests, protect its values, its identity, and play a long game of strategic patience, which I think is, is far from over. Democracy is under challenge, no doubt, in the US. Uh, I would argue, in some sense, it always has been. There are long-term systemic challenges, there are social cohesion challenges, political polarisation challenges in America that existed before Donald Trump, even though he played to them brilliantly, and will continue to exist after. What we don't want, from an Australian perspective, is a reflexive return to uh, late Obama engagement with the region, which involved a degree of credulous engagement with China, the idea that let's trust China at their word on the militarisation of the South China Sea or cyber security. We do need a harder-edged American engagement in the region, adopting some of the more Indo-Pacific outlook that the Trump administration had. G'day. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Chris Farnham and this is a podcast that looks at the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. This podcast is brought to you by Policy Forum and the National Security College at the ANU. And those comments you just heard were made by Rory Metcalf and Catherine Manstead as we recorded our Goodbye 2020 We Never Loved You wrap-up episode for what has been a very busy year. Rory Metcalf is the head of the National Security College, a former diplomat and intelligence analyst who began his career as a journalist. Catherine Manstead is the Senior Advisor for Public Policy here at the National Security College, a co-host of this podcast, and is also a non-resident fellow at the Alliance for Securing Democracy at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. We spoke on what a watershed year 2020 was for national security, how it has influenced the way we think about policymaking, and what to watch out for in 2021. Something for you to also watch out for in this episode is the competition that we are running to name our new pod stream starring our newly minted co-host Rory Medcalf. Stay tuned for that. But right now, let's hear from Rory and Catherine on saying goodbye to 2020 and hello to 2021. G'day Rory, g'day Catherine. Welcome to this, the final episode for 2020. Good to be here. Good to be here and good to be nearing the end of 2020. Yes, wow, what a year. And, you know, when we look back on this year, so much of what we've experienced has occurred in the national security space. Has the experience of 2020 changed the way that the college thinks about national security and where we exist in the national security ecosystem, Rory? Well, 2020 has been uh, an awful year on so many on so many counts. For the National Security College, it's been challenging, but it's also really, I think, vindicated the very inclusive, holistic way that we approach security issues, whether it's through our training courses, whether it's through our academic degree, whether it's through the, the policy and futures analysis we do. Uh, and, and maybe later in the conversation, we can get to how some of those issues you know, that confront us, such as the pandemic, 
really span national security in the broad. So I guess, in a sense, it's been a kind of coming of age for the National Security College, and I think as we move forward, we'll um, we'll really work across a much broader spectrum of security issues. Catherine, personally and professionally speaking, has it changed the way that you think about national security? I was just reflecting that right at the beginning of this year, in at the beginning of February or even late January, I think, the college ran uh, what was to be the opening of our 10th year. This is our 10th anniversary as a joint initiative between the Australian government and the Australian National University, entitled uh, presciently uh, Black Swans and Black Elephants. And we looked at what we thought 2020 might bring. We were just seeing the seeds of um, the coronavirus. Then we had just lived through the Black Summer bushfires in Australia. And the theme of that event was uh, powered by people. We were looking at the way in which strategic shocks uh, to Australia and indeed the world often come from the social sphere and the way in which people are not just objects of national security but very much the agents of uh, resilience and actors in this space. And absolutely, 2020 has um, confirmed that uh, very acutely to us and really affirmed, I guess, our mission. We've been speaking about being an inclusive place for national security for, um, you know, at least five years. And that's a very ambiguous kind of difficult concept to get your head around. What does that actually mean? Well, this year I think has shown very much uh, how all different aspects of society are affected by but need to come together um, in responding to security challenges. Now, you just used the term black elephant there, Rory. Last week, you gave a speech at the National Press Club of Australia, which has actually attracted quite a lot of attention here. And that speech spoke about the three black elephants that Australia has confronted in 2020. And for those that aren't steeped in the jargon, a black elephant is a cross between a black swan event, which is a strategic shock that was unforeseeable before it occurred, and the elephant in the room, the big issue that nobody's talking about. You cross them together and you get the black elephant, which is a major strategic shock that everyone can see coming, but no one paying it the proper attention. Rory, what were the three black elephants that you feel Australia has confronted this year? So in my speech to the uh, National Press Club in Australia, I talked about three black elephants. I talked about the um, the, the, the catastrophic bushfires that we experienced at the start of the year, the climate-induced bushfires. I talked about uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. And of course, the uh, the full spectrum coercion, the economic coercion, but also propaganda campaign that China is waging against Australia. Uh, all three of these are great strategic disruptions for us, great shocks. But in fact, uh, not only are they all obvious in hindsight, I think um, some of us saw saw them coming to some degree. And the challenge is that uh, government decision makers, uh, people dealing with day-to-day policy and political pressures often are not able to prepare for adequately or or, or act on these threats until they're upon us. Uh, Those are the black elephants. And I also put the question to the room, what are the other black elephants on the horizon, uh, whether for Australia or the world? Because we can be sure that the cascading uh, consequences of the pandemic are not the end of strategic shock this decade. We are going to get into what some of the other black elephants are in a minute, but I wouldn't mind digging into the Australia-China relationship a little bit more. How much of Beijing's rough handling of Australia is legitimately linked to their list of grievances, which the Chinese embassy recently made public? And how much of it is really about sending a message to the region on what will happen if you don't prostrate yourself at the feet of the Chinese national interest? 
Well, I suspected we might get to the Australia-China tensions in this conversation, so let's uh, let's go there. Look, firstly, uh, I think it's really important to situate this issue in a much wider regional and global context, a, a multipolar context. You know, the the book I published earlier this year on uh, the Indo-Pacific contest for the Indo-Pacific was really about multipolarity, about many powers having to find a way to manage and limit and find a settling point with China's use of uh, coercive pressure. And now Australia's in the front line of that economically, although I should note that India is in the front line of that in a much more violent way. So let's look at the pressure China's putting on Australia in that context of many other countries. Yes, it's partly a signal that's being sent to other countries in the region and in the world. Yes, it's also, I think, based on a genuine sense in China that they feel the need to somehow subordinate Australia as a rather defiant uh, democratic middle power that does and sees things differently. It's also, I think, we might get to this later, a message to the Chinese people, a reminder that the party is in control, the Communist Party is in control and will not tolerate um, resistance. Um, kind of belies the the benign myth that we've heard over the years that, that you know that China's rise is benign, that it's inevitable and that you'll be punished if you get in the way. So it's all of those things, but it's really important to remember that there's a demonstration effect here in more than more way than one. It's not only China trying to demonstrate to other middle powers in our region or the world that um, those players that get in the way of China will be will be punished, will be harmed. There's also a reverse demonstration effect where Australia is really setting an example for how middle power can protect its interests, protect its values, its identity, and play a long game of strategic patience, which I think is is far from over. Catherine, do you think that the publication of those 14 grievances by the Chinese embassy has actually forced the Australian government into a corner where they now cannot be seen as backing down on any of those 14 issues, otherwise they'll be seen as uh, kowtowing to Chinese pressure? Yeah, so I'm not so much worried about Australia being uh, backed into a corner here. I'm actually more interested in the corner that um, China might have put put itself in here by putting those 14 grievances down in a really open way. I mean, this is not normal diplomacy. Diplomacy uh, happens, dare I say, more diplomatically, but also not in this kind of, um, you know, nailing the theses to the door kind of way uh, of communicating. Those 14 grievances, I mean, we've heard the rehearsals of them uh, for some time in Canberra. That's just a crystallisation of how the embassy, I think, feels in in Australia and the Chinese government has been thinking for a long time. So I think certainly by putting all of this down on paper, yes, the Chinese government is messaging to a lot of different audiences, including a domestic audience, and it does put in a put the Chinese government in a difficult position in terms of giving it room for manoeuvre. The other thing I wonder about too, and Rory, you might have views here, is the extent to which, I mean, we often in in geopolitics assume that actors are perfectly rational and being very strategic and calculating. I also wonder if there's not some uh, genuine frustration boiling over from China here where, um, you know, they've asked Australia to do things in China's national interest. Australia's not playing ball and they're at the end of their tether. They're not sure where to go next. Um, you know, I think I think there is desperation. I think the um, you know the release of um, fourteen um, points are kind of an ultimatum to the Australian 
media. Um, some of those points, I think, were, were road tested in, in other conversations in the weeks beforehand. But, you know, it, it's a list of things China wants to change, including things that will not change because they're integral to Australia's uh, democratic character, you know, freedom of expression, for example. Uh, that, that That's an extraordinarily desperate act. The um, you know the outrageous uh, tweet, the 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 social media messaging that that deliberately depicted uh, with a very false and um, artificial image, you know, uh, an, an Australian soldier committing an, an, an atrocity. Um, again, uh, you know, a bizarre act of desperation coming from an official foreign ministry statement. That is not normal diplomacy. At all, and it, I think it, it was that, it was really a signal that they have no interest in actually repairing the relationship. No, it was, it was inflammatory, and I, and I think look, some critics will argue that the Australian Prime Minister took the bait, and we can we can debate that, but it's certainly um, a chilling message to other countries, not that they should be afraid, but that there is now no respectable normal in Chinese diplomacy. I would not want to be the Chinese ambassador or deputy um, ambassador in this town in Canberra because clearly they're under intense pressure and they uh, they are not delivering on their um, their KPIs. Catherine, Rory just mentioned or alluded to the fact that this great focus on the pandemic and COVID-19 may be hiding some other black elephants within the herd. Have you got any ideas of what you think may be some of the black elephants that we should be paying a little bit more attention to? Huh? So I think, I mean, to repeat Rory's first black elephant, the the bushfire crisis in Australia, I think if we had have been holding this podcast uh, at the end of 2020, if the COVID pandemic hadn't have happened, the bushfires would have absolutely taken up a lot of our conversation. And I think what we have in Australia is we've had this wake-up call, we've had catastrophic fires um, climate induced it's it's almost impossible for the human mind to grasp the level of damage that those bushfires called caused in Australia like over a billion animals dead millions of hectares of land destroyed things that we are not going to recover from anytime soon um and how we kind of gain that momentum out of out of tragedy to have meaningful action on energy policy on climate policy which have been real uh, issues in Australia I think they've unseated four of the last five prime ministers who've tried to to, to move the needle a little bit um, and also think about what our domestic crisis responses look like to climate induced uh, catastrophes because probably what we were doing in the past in terms of predicting crises and in terms of responding to them uh, are not going to work in the future because the intensity, the duration and the scale of these is going to increase. So that's my perennial black elephant, Chris. Rory, any black elephants do you think deserve more attention? Oh, than look, I would agree with the um, you know the, the energy challenge that Australia faces. I mean, some some observers might say you know optimistically or confidently that all countries ultimately find their own energy solutions, but Australia is is on the one hand making this you know very very slow, fitful, politicised um, move away from carbon that's increasingly you know causing diplomatic costs for us. At the same time, I'm worried about the the very fact that our our, our transport fuels, our liquid uh, refined transport fuels uh, are, you know, overwhelmingly imported, overwhelmingly come by sea. Australia keeps pitifully low stocks of these far below international energy agency standards and we acknowledge that and yet for a relatively small sum, we would be able to provide ourselves greater security there. But at the moment, we're vulnerable in a geopolitical crisis, maybe a future 
blockade or armed conflict in the region. And you can imagine the social cohesion impact of a true energy crisis in, in this or any other developed country. Um, you know, we saw the toilet paper wars at the start of this year. We did. Uh, in Australian supermarkets, imagine uh, when, when, when we're all out of, um, out of fuel as well, uh, if there's a, a crisis or a blockade. And that goes to the second black elephant I worry about that isn't probably getting enough attention, and that's the, uh, the long-term challenge to social cohesion in a developed democracy like Australia, whether it's issues to do with social inclusion or to do with, um, you know, some degree of economic equality, uh, you know, the, or the, the grand experiment of multiculturalism in this country where we haven't yet, I think, formed a foreign and security policy that genuinely reflects the diversity of our people. I think those are um, longer-term things that I would worry about. My black elephant is also focused on the social space, and it's the divisions that Australia seems to be importing from overseas. We've always had conspiracy theorists, nationalists and racists uh, in Australia, but a confluence of factors such as social media, the pandemic, the tacit promotion of white victimhood by elements of the Trump administration has seen a lot of these narratives and practices be replicated in Australian society by some pretty unsavoury actors. Some conspiracy theories and their identities associated with them are pretty harmless. And they, You can be a flat earther or believe that man never landed on the moon and cause no real harm. But the, the theories around QAnon vaccinations and the racially focused ones like the Great Replacement come with an element of paranoia and are essentially a call to action to defend society from some kind of evil actor. And when the followers of these theories lock themselves away in their own social media bubbles, the polarisation of their beliefs are quite intense and the potential for serious violence exists. There's also the outside risk that a bad faith political actor might look to harness these social forces for their own political gain, but I think that's less likely and the real risk is the social unrest that can be caused by some of these groups. Now, Aside from the black elephants, we've also experienced the most riveting political theatre in the US with the recent elections. Uh, and I note that just a couple of hours before we recorded today, Joe Biden has been confirmed as president-elect in the US. It's pretty clear that Donald Trump will not concede defeat and is angling to be a wrecker to the incoming Biden administration. I want to ask what you think a Biden presidency will mean for the future. But first, has this election been nothing more than a little bit of theatre for us to all watch from afar? Or do the attacks on American democracy have actual impacts for Australia in the region, Catherine? So I think, I mean, theatre is a, a generous term because one generally goes to the theatre to have a good time uh, and certainly watching the election, the US election from afar has not been a good time. It's been very stressful, I would say, for countries and uh, in the Indo-Pacific region and allies and partners of the US and in general uh, supporters of democracy. What I would say, though, I mean, you mentioned that um, – we now have a president-elect in Joe Biden. The institutions of American democracy have in some sense pulled through. Uh, fears that the Supreme Court would turn into a completely politicised um, tool of, of President Trump uh, haven't materialised. And we see a number of uh, officials and elected people at state levels uh, from both parties, uh, actually standing up and trying to give a semblance of normalcy uh, and trust back to the system. So democracy is under challenge, no doubt, in the US. Uh, I would argue 
in some sense it always has been. Um, we do ourselves a disservice in Australia by thinking that America's brand of democracy is the same as our brand of democracy here. It's not. There are long term systemic challenges. There are social cohesion challenges, political polarization challenges in America that existed before Donald Trump, even though he played to them brilliantly and will continue to exist after. Roy, keen, keen to know if you think that what's happening in the US has ramifications for Australia, but also keen to hear what you think that a Biden presidency will mean for America's foreign policy in the Indo-Pacific. Thanks, Chris. Well, look, I, three thoughts. Firstly, just to um, to really echo and reinforce Catherine's point about Australian democracy. We're, we're a bit shy in this country about our democracy um, proselytising or promotion, and I guess that's classic Australian understatement. But Australian democracy is special. Uh, the secret ballot was an Australian invention. We we don't tend to um, remind people of that, but uh, that's made an enormous impact positively on the world, and it's a perfect anti-coercion tool, if if you like. The um, you know compulsory voting again, I think an enormous uh, insurance policy, a sort of a buffer against political extremism uh, and those sort of movements that uh, that we've seen, you know, Trump and others master. What happens now? I mean, I would, the second point I'd make is that it's, it's reassuring that the American system for all of the, the flaws in American democracy is, uh, is in fact, uh, beginning to work or it is working and it's, 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 it's finally revealing, uh, its staying power to those of us who've been doubters. You know, there hasn't been the, um, the, the complete failure of institutions or the, Armed insurrection uh, in support of Trump that, frankly, some observers in the in the black swan and black elephant space were were speculating about at the start of this year, including in our own in-house uh, discussions on this issue. So I think America uh, is here to stay as a power in the world and as a power in the Indo-Pacific, even though you know there's, there's an enormous challenge ahead in getting on top of the uh, of, of the pandemic crisis. In the Indo-Pacific region, in Australia's uh, wider region, uh, what can we expect from a Biden administration? That's that's the key question for us now. And I think what we don't want from an Australian perspective is a kind of a, uh, a reflexive return to uh, late Obama uh, engagement with the region, which involved a degree of, um, I guess, uh, credulous uh, engagement with China, the idea that let's trust China at their word on the militarisation of the South China Sea or cyber security. We do need, a, I think, a harder-edged uh, American engagement in the region, uh, adopting some of the more Indo-Pacific outlook that the Trump administration, um, I think, had but with a much more comprehensive, balanced follow-through on the economic front, on the development front, on the diplomacy front, and in uh, multilateral engagement working with allies and partners. So the opportunity is there for the Biden administration. The, um, the challenge will be that they need to hit the ground running. We can't afford to wait a year while uh, Biden and his team work out what they want in the Indo-Pacific, how they'll engage, or whether in fact uh, they even see the region in that multipolar Indo-Pacific sense that Australia and so many US allies now do. Because if we have to wait a year to find out what the Biden administration wants to do in this region, uh, then China really will have made some pretty unacceptable inroads. All right. Well, that's actually a pretty good spot for us to stop and take a quick break. We'll be back soon with more from Roy Medcalf and Catherine Manstead here on the National Security Podcast. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists, and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Catherine, do you think that a Biden presidency is going to see us go back to a little bit more uh, of a stable American approach to the region? Or do you think that the the Trump presidency has changed the region and the way that we see America to the point of no return? So the first thing I think is important to remember is that a lot of the changes in America's approach and understanding of China that happened, particularly at the beginning of Trump's presidency, was not led or architected by Trump himself, but was in many respects uh, something of a bipartisan shift in mindset in Washington. The execution of that strategy there has been a lot more, I guess, uh, division and and uncertainty about and, and divides between sides of politics. The other thing I'm watching is to think about the Biden team that he seems to have around him. A lot of the members of his incoming team will have been associated with that late Obama-era policy. They were very much connected to the pivot to the Asia-Pacific that characterised Obama's approach here. And I think a lot of people and allies and partners in the region will be looking at that with some uh, uncertainty and and wondering if... uh, We'll continue to see uh, whether there'll be a continuation of that adjusted policy um, under the Trump administration. The other thing I think is is interesting, though, and very welcome, is that uh, the president-elect has been focused very much on working with and through allies and partners. So perhaps a bit tongue-in-cheek, he's promised to build a united front of allies and partners uh, to confront China. Uh, but also another interesting vehicle to watch is is the promise to hold a, a global summit for democracy uh, in the first uh, year of Biden's term. Uh, interesting to see how that pans out. Do you think that's a little bit pie in the sky or is there really something there? Look, I think you don't need to look far in America at the moment to see a growing focus on this contest between democracies and authoritarians. I mean, you see it coming out of China with a lot of the propaganda tweets talking about how authoritarians do better than democracies at addressing things like COVID. But you also see it in the DC think tank circuit. I mean, you just open up a a webpage and look at recent uh, publications from think tanks. You see words like techno-democratic statecraft, uh, an offset strategy for democracies. Very much there is this sense, I think, that democratic foreign policy is looking to to re-embrace its democratic roots, uh, not in the party sense, but in the political ethos sense. Uh, and that is given uh, will be given expression at this global summit. What it actually looks like in practice and who gets a seat at the table, uh, both in terms of countries, particularly in our region, and, and also civil society actors, I think that's a big space to watch. 
So I, I might pull a few strands together there. We're talking about the competition between democracies and authoritarianism. We've also been talking about the ways that um, authoritarians may coerce a different democratic states. And we've been talking about China and the region. There's one place that comes to mind very much there, and that's Taiwan. Rory, do you see Taiwan as a little bit of a bellwether for the region? Is, is, is there anything that Australia can look to in Taiwan to guide us how we approach uh, the way China is dealing with democracies in the region? Dealing with democracies, that's an interesting um, way of characterising it. And look, I, I think that um, Taiwan really has uh, grown in its profile and stature this year in, in the world. You know, one of the um, one of the silver linings, if you like, uh, for this part of the world, for the Indo-Pacific uh, during this, this awful year of pandemic and strategic shock, is that a number of uh, small and resilient societies and polities that um, that you don't often think of as, pa- as powerful have demonstrated an extraordinary ability to protect their interests and to become really islands of stability in the region. Um, and Taiwan is one of those. So we've seen this year Taiwan uh, do an exceptional job of protecting its uh, its interests and its people from the impact of the pandemic through um, through very democratic means, not through an authoritarian surveillance response. We've seen Taiwan resist interference in its democratic election process, uh, in, in interference that you know very clearly emanates from the Chinese Communist Party. And we've also seen Taiwan continue to really stare down coercion against it. So, look, I think there are some lessons for other democracies. I think there's a bigger question moving into 2021 and beyond about how the rest of us engage with Taiwan and to what extent we see Taiwan's uh, staying power and security as really resonant with our interests and our values and how we square that with the, um, you know, the, the, the diplomatic ballet of, uh, the one China, um, one, one China, um, position. So, uh, let, let's see, but I think that, um, we're going to be hearing a lot more about Taiwan and about the way that democracies like Australia, uh, speak with Taiwan in the years ahead. All right, so that's enough of looking backwards. Let's look forward. Catherine, what are your predictions of what we should be looking out for and paying closer attention to in 2021? I never make predictions, (laughs) only assessments. But look, two things that I'm thinking about. One, we talk a lot about the health consequences of the pandemic, and absolutely that should be an area of focus. But the uh, economic fallout from a global recession is something that will not go away even as the pandemic will inevitably come under control. Uh, we're looking at living in a poorer and more volatile world as a consequence. Progress, for instance, on the sustainable development goals was already not looking so good before 2020, but uh, is now looking uh, not very good at all as countries and businesses turn more inward and uh, investing less and providing less aid and development assistance to the global south and those living in poverty. So what poverty plus conflict plus climate change equals in 2021 and on, uh, that is an area of interest. The other thing uh, on the opposite end of the spectrum for me is, is looking at what's happening with big tech companies and the way in which states are starting to rein them in. So China in 2020 has taken some really interesting steps towards putting antitrust or anti-competition regulation on its big tech giants. Perhaps it's recognised that 
some of those tech giants have got uh, too big. Perhaps it read one of the Future Insights papers that the National Security College put out earlier in the year where our authors suggested that it's not very good for China's economy or society or indeed polity to have big tech uh, uh companies that dominate certain sectors and have more power in those sectors than the government sometimes does. Um, but that's not just the story in China. In the US, the Federal Trade Commission, along with 40 plus states and territories, are taking antitrust action against Facebook, which could completely transform, uh, if successful and even if not successful, frankly, uh, a social media ecosystem and that balance between state and market. All right, I'll give you the last say in a minute, Rory. Um, my thing to watch for 2021 is a regional dynamic, but it's actually outside of the Indo-Pacific. We've seen a number of countries recognise Israel and sign treaties with them in what's being billed as a bit of an outbreak of peace and a triumph for the US diplomacy under Donald Trump. But in reality, this is less of a step towards regional stability and more of a response to Iran's growing power in the region. This trend is likely to continue in 2021 with improved relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia, and that's going to force some kind of a reaction from Tehran. The downside here for US partners and allies in the Indo-Pacific is that this is likely to divert US attention from our region and back to the Middle East, something which I'm sure that will please maybe Beijing, Pyongyang and some others in the region. Rory, what are your thoughts about and what we need to watch in 2021? Well, firstly, I'd, I'd echo uh, what I've heard from both of you, but your point on um, the Middle East, Chris, and, and looking at the Korean Peninsula as well. I think they're, they're classic examples of the, you know, the, the perennial uh, places of, um, of of tension and trouble in international affairs that many of us have taken our eyes off this year because of COVID nineteen. It's, it's a little bit like uh, so many people have not been to the doctor this year because they're they're worried about uh, you know contracting or spreading the um, uh, COVID nineteen. But as a consequence, they're probably suffering all sorts of other health problems that they could have treated uh, in advance. So I think we do have to uh, keep our eyes on multiple parts of the globe at once. Going to 2021 and beyond, though, and, and going back to some of the themes that I've spoken on today, there will be, I think, um, I guess, uh, the beginnings of a larger reckoning for China um, in, in the year ahead and the years ahead, uh, the covid year, the pandemic year, has in some uh, strange way been good for China's relative power in the world, certainly for the um, the image that China paints of its unstoppable power, precisely because the damage has been so great, for example, in the United States uh, and in Europe. You know, there's a, there's a something of a crisis of confidence uh, in those places. But this is a very long game, and I think in some ways um, China is going to begin to pay the price of uh, really its own overreach in so many aspects of the world. What do I mean by that? Uh, you know, Belt and Road uh, lending uh, already seems to be going down dramatically. I think there is a rethink in China of the extraordinary cost and overreach of the Belt and Road, and that's going to leave all sorts of, um, if you like, frustrated um, partners of China's elsewhere in the world, including in the uh, the developing world. Um, perhaps that uh, MOU and the Australian state of Victoria is going to be irrelevant anyway under under those circumstances. The the political pushback and the diplomatic pushback against China, I think, is going to accelerate. We've seen a dynamic this year of more and more small and middle powers begin to band together 
in coalitions. We've seen a fundamental rethink, I think, in Europe uh, about China, and I think uh, you know France, uh, Britain, and other parts of Europe. I can call still. I can still call Britain Europe in a sense, I guess, uh, are really looking now at risk in the China relationship and are going to begin to build greater common cause. I mean, if, if, if a Biden administration and Europe really found common cause on technology and human rights in a China context, we'd see a very, very different, um, different game. Do, do you think that, um, Seeing what Australia as a strong trade partner with China is going through, and the, the economic coercion that we're experiencing is going to resonate with some of the smaller BRI countries that have signed on to their uh, to the relationship with China. That this is what they might expect a closer economic relationship with China to look like. Well, there are certainly costs to reliance. There are costs to so in any sort of economic. Uh, dependence on China. That doesn't mean that um, some private sector actors or even some countries won't opportunistically uh, respond to Australia's problem. You know, it's a, it's a little depressing, obviously, to see you know the Canadian coal industry or some of the other uh, sectors around the world that are jumping into the breach at the moment uh, that's left by China's economic punishment of Australia. But in the long term, I think there is going to be this push for greater solidarity. Uh, there's certainly uh, uh, an absolute deficit of trust now between most of the rest of the world and China. We'll see that begin to hit home, I think, in, in 2021. But, but finally, I'm, I am concerned that in the next uh, year or two, we should begin to focus a bit more on the, the intersection of some of the issues we've spoken about today, not only the Chinese strategic overreach, but also the impact on the transnational security issues, resources, the human factor. Um, and I just noted uh, in the news recently reports of this uh, extraordinary um, uh, planned Chinese uh, development on an island in Torres Strait between Australia and Papua New Guinea on, on Daru Island, which is uh, a part of PNG territory in Torres Strait, a $200 million um, fisheries processing facility in theory on an island that's basically a mud flat with very low fish stocks around it. Uh, big question mark there for the Australian government, but it's emblematic of the challenges we're going to have right across the region as Chinese fishing fleets push out, whether it's around the Galapagos or in the Indian Ocean or the Pacific, um, as uh, countries elsewhere in the region want the investment, want the infrastructure, want the economic partnership with China, but also are very conscious of their sovereignty and their need to steward their natural resources. I think that's going to be one of the big tensions of the decade ahead. It's not just the South China Sea anymore. All right, finally, Rory, Catherine, what are the big plans for the National Security College in 2021? Well, this year, 2020, was really important for us. It was, um, as I said, it was almost a coming of age. It was 10 years since the National Security College was established. And that vision of the college as being a place for building national capability, whether it's in the public service or academia or industry, uh, remains uh, absolutely central to our mission and, if, if anything, more important uh, than ever. So I think 2021 is going to be the start of, I guess, uh, a renewal of that mission for us. And I think we can expect uh, higher levels of engagement on uh, one of the ideas I proposed at the press club recently, the idea of a national interest strategy, uh, which is to some extent a national security strategy, but integrates much more closely uh, economics and society. Uh, that's going to be the great 
unsolved question we will work with government and other partners in Australia on in the year ahead. And I think a lot of our work will be on that big question of defining what is the national interest and how do we reconcile uh, seemingly competing demands, interests and values in building that Australian resilience for the years ahead. It's worth pointing out too that we'll have a new stream of the podcast coming next year. Yes, we will. And Rory will be joining as the co-host to look after that stream. There's a competition, isn't there, Chris, to name it? That's right. We need a snazzy title for Rory's new stream where he will be chatting with uh, national security leaders from around the world. If you have any thoughts on what we could name this pod stream, you can get in touch with us on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum, or you can get in touch directly with me at NatSecPod. The Australian entry that sends in the best suggestions will get a bunch of NSC swag, including coffee mugs sports water bottles, pens, and so on and so on. So get your entries in and we will give a shout out to all those who send them through in our first episode of the National Security Podcast in 2021. Roy Medcalf, Catherine Manstead, thanks very much for joining us in the last episode of this year on the National Security Podcast. Thanks very much, Chris. Good to be here. It's been great. And a big thanks to my co-hosts, Rory and Catherine, for sharing their thoughts on this, the final episode for 2020. You can share your thoughts as well on Twitter using at NatSecPod or at Apps Policy Forum. You can join the Policy Forum Facebook group at Policy Forum Pod, or you can email us directly using podcast at policyforum.net. Don't forget to give us a rating and some feedback on whatever platform you pod with. We're keen to hear how you think we might improve the pod or even what you'd like to hear us discuss in the new year. Until then, stay safe and stay healthy so we can chat to you again in 2021 on the National Security Podcast. Podcast.